Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Even as I also overcame and am sat down with my Father in his throne, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Father, thank you for your word once again. This final letter that you have written to the church of Laodicea, I pray tonight as we look into it, that God, we will be able to see the exact meaning and have clarity in seeing the words that you have shared with that church and how they are so relevant to our generation. Minister, we pray, speak clearly in Jesus' name, all God's children say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. God bless you. You can be seated. I trust you was able to pick up a uh, study guide. There's some copies back there in the back if you uh, missed one when you come in. Take a few notes as we follow through this uh, final letter here in the book of Revelation. Now, As we've come to this final church out of the seven that is listed here in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, we've arrived at this church known as the church of Laodicea. Now, this last church, in my opinion, is probably the worst. Uh, Five churches with serious problems have already been addressed. Okay, and they are on somewhat of a descending scale. And as we move through the seven letters, we need to remember that two of them, two out of the seven, had no condemnation. Remember that? That was Smyrna and Philadelphia. The other five progressively degenerate. Okay? So this evening, we've come to the last, and notice on the screen, as you can see with the map, we've made it to Laodicea. We started over at Ephesus, and we made a circle, okay? So we've come all the way back, all right, almost back to Ephesus, but we're stopping here at Laodicea this evening. So um, this church, and I believe this is on your study guide, This church could easily be called the selfie generation church. And you say, why is that? I'm not talking about because they had iPhones with cameras. Okay. I'm referring to they were so wrapped up in self. Their reputation would not be hard to prove because Scripture reveals clearly that they were self-sufficient. Notice that on your Bible study tonight. Self-sufficient, self-deceived, and self-confident. Self-sufficient, self-deceived, and self-confident. And to make matters worse, guess what? They had locked Christ outside the church. They were religious, 
but I'd say many of them were not redeemed. And how many know for a church, that's a problem, right? And we find Christ, as we go through this uh, letter, he is basically looking for anyone in that church to hear his voice and come and open the door as he's knocking. Okay, so, so we're going to look at this church, and we're going to follow the same outline that we've been using, okay, with the other six. So that takes us to point number one. We've called it just the church, okay? But again, remember, this section, this point is really more about the city than it is about the church because it enriches our understanding of Christ's evaluation when we understand the culture that the church was seated in. Okay, so in regards to Laodicea, if you had lived in the cities anywhere basically around the Mediterranean Sea around 2,000 years ago, and let's say someone come to you and told you that they were going on vacation and that they had found the perfect resort, okay? They found the perfect place to relax, natural hot springs, shopping in all kinds of designer stores, gambling in the bustling casinos, watching professional sporting events, attending theaters for award-winning plays. Guess what? You would have known without them even saying what they're referring to because Laodicea was known for all of the above, okay? It was a city named after the wife of its founding emperor, Antiochus II. Her name was Lattice. We believe that he founded Laodicea before 240 BC because that's the year he divorced his wife, Lattice. And you normally don't name a town after your divorced wife. So it, it soon become, uh, let's see if we had an equivalent. It became uh, Las Vegas, Beverly Hills, and Chase Manhattan Bank all rolled in one. In fact, the citizens of Laodicea uh, had built a huge banking center there. And it actually became the banking hub of all of Asia Minor, okay? So uh, if you was to imagine that map we had up there earlier, that entire area uh, was known to go to Laodicea as far as the financial banking center of that region. So they tell us that Laodicea the citizens were by and large financially so well off that history tells us an earthquake came, destroyed several uh, uh, large buildings throughout the city, and <clears throat> so Rome sent word that they were going to send funds to help them rebuild, and Laodicea, guess what they did? They declined the help. They declined the offer from Rome saying, we don't need your assistance. We got this. And they did not need help 
basically for anyone, somebody say the word self-sufficient. And evidently, they didn't think they needed help from even the Lord. And we'll see references as Christ makes, he hearkens back to their riches. So, also, it was a city noted for producing black wool. The sheep that were bred nearby Laodicea were renowned for having black, almost violet, uh, colored wool, something that was pretty rare. And so coveted was it that the Laodicean mills produced uh, four different kinds of outer garments, which were exported all over the world then, and they became the name brands of the first century. They were considered to, uh, to many to be the garment capital of the world. And so, and how many know Christ makes a reference to their clothing later? And it was also the city uh, known uh, to have a medical school primarily for the eyes. They had uh, invented the eye salve and distribute it through the entire region of Asia. And we'll see Christ reference that later as well. So, Laodicea was a booming, wealthy, industrious, for that time in the world, very important city. All right, so that's the setting. Number two, their Lord. Now, as with last week with the church at Philadelphia... Christ draws a reference to himself, which is not contained in chapter 1. Christ seems to have a very uh, direct, I guess you could say, purpose for doing this. So here, for the church of Laodicea, he introduces himself as the Amen. Now, how many know that's a unique title? Uh, Amen is a word, you know, we say over and over. In church, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew, it, they actually left it the Hebrew and brought it over to Greek. They didn't change it. Literally, it means faithful or true. Uh, it's involving certainty, faithfulness. It's a word that, when used by God, it means it is so. End of story. It is so. Okay. Uh, when that word, uh, when we use it as referring to man. Uh, it comes to mean, let it be so, okay? And so the unique thing here is that Christ calls himself the what? The amen. Now, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he said, For all the promises of God are in, uh, in him are yea and in him amen, unto the glory of God, okay? Paul was saying that all of the promises of God are fulfilled in who? In Christ. And to put it another way, if we don't have Christ, how many know we don't have any of God's promises? He is the fulfillment of those promises. Christ being called the Amen means that he has the final and the conclusive word. In the New Testament, the Lord often began teaching by saying, verily, verily. How many remember that? 
literally means a man, a man. In other words, he was saying, uh, what I'm about to say to you is the final word. It is a word of certainty. It is a word of truth. And when we listen to a minister and, and, and when we amen the preacher, we are effectively saying, you're telling the truth and I'm committed to it. I'm committed to following it. Oh, you better be careful what you say amen to. So additionally, coupled with that, Christ introduces himself as the amen, but he also calls himself the faithful and true witness. Now certainly we could elaborate on how faithful and true Christ is and all that he does, but this, this is more than just a statement of his character. John 1.18 reminds us that Christ is the one who shows us the Father like no one else. The th and so that is what he is saying. He is the faithful and true witness of the Father. If you, Jesus told him one occasion, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. I'm the replica. I'm the, the exact representation. I, I put God the Father on display in, in, in some other words. And so the, now the third and final description that Christ says about himself is that he is the beginning of creation in the sense that he is the one who began creation. Christ is the beginning of it because he was there and he was there when it all started. In other words, in all of creation, Christ is supremely first. How I many know he's second to none? So if we put all this together, it becomes clear. Notice on your worksheet, he is the one through whom all the promises of God flow. Then he is the one who alone can bear accurate witness of the Father. And he is the one who is in fact one with the Father in creation. Okay, so let's just put it like this. Christ is the essential one, right? Is that okay? How many really believe that? Good, good. And we can have everything this world makes available, but if we don't have Christ, how many know we don't have anything? <clears throat> and being that Laodicea is so self-sufficient, we see why this is such a fitting introduction to Christ or of Christ to the church at Laodicea <coughs> and so the church their Lord let's look at point number three let's move into the evaluation now <coughs> bear in mind that <coughs> geography tells us that Laodicea rested on a plateau, several hundred feet high, and this helped make this city more secure. But one of the weaknesses of that is that water had to be transported. And they said it was uh, transported about six miles which they did so by means of a man-made aqueduct. That meant that when the water finally, six miles later, reached the city of Laodicea, it had, guess what kind of status? It was not hot. 
It was not cold. It was lukewarm. It wasn't refreshing like a cool mountain spring. It wasn't something like the hot springs that Sardis had. In reality, it was disgusting. Hello. And this is the point that Christ makes about this church. He says, you guys are like your water supply. Now, somebody ought to say, what an evaluation. He says, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, he said, I'm going to spit you out. Now, following that analogy, Christ is saying that their worship as a whole was obviously not pleasing to him. Rather, it is detestable, disgusting, gross, and he wasn't going to have anything to do with it. The words Christ used in the Greek are, are extreme opposites. It really means you're not ice cold, you're not boiling hot. And the analogy of being cold or boiling hot are good things in his eyes, as opposed to what they were, which was lukewarm, which is a reference to something they would really understand. Because cold water on a hot day, how many know that's refreshing? Hot water on a cold day, that's comforting. But lukewarm water on any day is neither comforting nor refreshing. How do you get lukewarm water out of your tap right now, today? Well, you turn on the cold water a little, and you turn on the hot water a little, and you get lukewarm water. And so lukewarm has now, through the years, became a, become associated with compromise, a mixture a little of Christ mixed with a little bit of the flesh. A little bit of the church mixed with a little bit of the culture. Does that make sense? So the Laodiceans now were in the middle of the road. They were, that, that middle of the road actually become their comfort zone. But how many know the middle of the road is a dangerous place to be? Because you've got both sides you're going to have to dodge and deal with. And so they're sitting on the fence. They're in neutral. Okay? They're not progressing. And some churches make Christ weep. Some make him angry. Some grieve him. But this one made him sick. Their self-sufficient, empty religion nauseated him. And these believers were self-sufficient, self-enamored, self-absorbed, anemic people who had no interest in applying or providing the gospel even to themselves or anyone else. So they made Christ just want to lose his lunch. And verse 17 tells us, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not 
that thou art. And notice the words he uses. You're wretched. Everybody say wretched. Miserable. Poor. Blind. And naked. They were all, I mean, this church literally is dripping with self-sufficiency and self-confidence. They literally thought they needed nothing. And that's why Christ diagnosed them as lukewarm, which, how many know, a little newsflash here, and I think this is on your study guide, the root of spiritual lukewarmness is some form of self-sufficiency. Because their budget was good, the seats were full, their programs were cutting edge and busy. And when they looked around and did their evaluation, they thought they were just fine. And that is such a contrast from what Christ saw. Christ said, when I see you, I see that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Now we need to let that mental image sink in for a second as you realize where this church was located, okay? Because it's irony on every corner. Imagine that these folks, well, let me say it this way. Let's imagine tonight that through the door of our church walks in a blind man. By glancing at him, it looks obvious that he is a poor blind man. Barely dressed. Maybe he smells like a dumpster. And as we approach him and offer help, he says, no thanks. I don't need anything. But we're trying to compute. Man, he don't hardly have any clothes. You have to hold your nose. And yet, just like that fellow, the Laodiceans represent the most absurd misevaluation of self that any person ever gave. In the Greek, the word wretched is a compound word, which literally means steadfastly miserable. It was the word Paul used, if you recall, of himself when he realized he couldn't escape sin on his own. Remember in Romans 7.24, he cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? It is a word that means never good, not at all, not ever. Okay, so that's the word wretched. The word miserable in Greek indicates a person in desperate need of pity. And then Christ adds, they were poor, blind, and naked, which all of those words they would understand because of their city's reputation. So the real condition of this church was appalling. Yet they thought they were the cat's meow. Right? 
Now, let me give you, let me give you an example of a person who could have been a member of the church at Laodicea. In Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 25, we meet a man who is one of the most relevant examples for our present religious culture here in America. Luke tells us that this man was a ruler. We also know that he was rich. Matthew's account tells us he was young. So because we're really smart people, we call him the rich, young ruler. Right? But if you'll notice, he is the epitome of what the church in Laodicea was. Externally, he thought he was fine. Right? Even when Christ told him to keep the commandments, he said, all these I've kept from my youth up. He thought he was fine. But Christ's evaluation of him, how many know it was a little bit different? Christ knew he was poor because he lacked treasure in heaven. Christ knew he was wretched because he loved this earth's properties. And so Christ tells him what he needs to do to have treasure in heaven. But in the end, he chooses to remain poor, wretched, and miserable. He was an example of the church at Laodicea. He would have been a perfect member for their church. What they thought and what they were were two very different things, right? All their achievements, all of their goodness, all of their accomplishments, Christ said, amounted to nothing. What looked valuable to them was detestable to Christ and actually made him nauseated. And just as a side note, we should know that self-sufficiency is not an attitude producing salvation or sanctification. Christ never asked for people who thought they could do it on their own. You'll never find that in the Gospels. In fact, that was really more like the Pharisees. Like the story also included in Luke 18, where the self-righteous, proud Pharisee stands praying, you know, on the street corner, in contrast to the humble, tax-collecting publican. Christ found no favor in the Pharisee who was self-justified. But he gave, I mean, you give Christ a, a humble beggar who knows his need, and Christ will come to his rescue in a hurry. Praise God. And it is what Matthew 5.3 means when it says, Blessed are the poor in what? In spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That wasn't Laodicea. Because they just knew for sure they were rich. See, how tragic. Since in reality, they were poor. They had nothing that was of value to God, and yet they considered themselves rich. Now, let's be reminded, if we don't have anything that God values, we don't have anything worthwhile, right? So we've looked at the church, their Lord, their evaluation. Let's look at the advice. 
Christ says, basically, I know you have lots of money, but you need some gold that's refined by fire. Then you'll become rich. Christ was going to have to purify these folks. And how many know gold is purified in what? Fire. Christ also goes on to say, I know you guys specialize in this, this dark wool, this clothing. But he says, you need some pure white garments. And he says, I can clothe you with that so that the shame of your nakedness is not revealed. I know, he said, about your, your eye salve that you export all over the uh, area. But he says, you need some true eye salve to be applied to your own eyes so that you can see your true condition. Laodicea was famous for this, this eye powder that was considered in the ancient world to help weaken ailing eyes. This substance was exported all over the world in a tablet form. The tablets were then taken and dissolved, mixed with water to make the salve to place on the eyelids that they believed would restore sight. And Laodicea produced eye salve. Notice on your study guide, but their church had nothing to produce spiritual discernment. Somebody say, help us, Lord. Because they were the living epitome of spiritually blind. And the thing that all of these have in common is that they're going to get these only from Christ. All these things that he says they need, he is the only resource. That is why he said, buy from me. Christ is saying that he alone. Now, that's not an indication that you can buy your salvation. It's not an indication that salvation is for sale. When he says buy here in the Greek, it simply means you need to acquire. You need to get it. And I'm the only one that has it, right? <coughs> and so the church at Laodicea, <coughs> excuse me, had a lot of money, but they didn't have any treasure in heaven. They had nothing that God valued. Is this making sense? How many know we live in a culture that, that praises self? Self-esteem, self-sufficiency, self-confidence, uh, self-worth. Those are the staples of our self-centered culture. And none of those attributes is going to get us to heaven. Right? Christ's advice to Laodicea is you're going to have to come to me because I've got what you need. How many's found that to be true? Oh, somebody ought to say, I've found that to be true. And so he moves from his advice to the encouragement. And when the church at Laodicea read this letter, oh, man, it must have sent them reeling. They must have been devastated. So the Lord compassionately reminds them in verse 19 that those whom he loves, he reproves, 
He disciplines so that they will be awakened and have time to repent. The mercies of the Lord. We ought to celebrate that. Christ could have easily wrote this church off. But Christ is saying simply, notice on your study guide, you still have time to change your course. You still have time to turn around. You have time to confess your pride, your self-centeredness, your arrogance. And you have time to move ahead. So get moving. Okay? And he's writing to people who had become indistinguishable from their culture. They fit in. They just related to their culture so nicely. They had climatized. They never caused anyone any heartburn over the gospel. They did not come across as fanatics for Christ, yet they didn't act like atheists either. Anyone could feel comfortable around them because they were lukewarm. Oh, but notice finally this kind invitation from the chief shepherd. He says, behold, I stand at the door. He's not turned his back on him. Hallelujah. I said, hallelujah. He's not turned his back. He's not walking the other way. He's still at their door and he's knocking. And he says, if any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him. Praise God. I will sup with him and he with me. That is an invitation first and foremost to the church. This is still a valid church as far as being a place to gather. They still, I mean, there's still hope for them. This verse is often used, I know, as a text for an evangelistic appeal. We, when we're making an evangelistic appeal, we say, he's standing at the door knocking. But this is, first of all, to the church. He's needing to let them come in and fellowship. We talked in our last discussion last Wednesday uh, about the church of Philadelphia and how they were in Philadelphia, which was known as the city of the open what? I'm glad some of you remember that. They were the church of the open door, but Laodicea is the church of the closed door. Oh, God. They had kept Christ out, and he was saying, I'm still out here, and I'll still come in, but you got to be the one to open the door. He's still knocking. Notice, church, he doesn't break down the door. Boy, he could if he wanted to. But he doesn't break down the door. He doesn't barge in. Why? Because this is the door of fellowship. And Christ waits for us to recognize our need. And he stands ready to offer us the strength and the fellowship and the help if we would ever open the door. Boy, I just absolutely love how he, he has dealt with this church and he concludes with this beautiful image. You might expect that he's 
writing to this church with fire in his eyes, similar to the letter to Thyatira. Or you might expect that he, he was angry, ready to come with the sword like he said he was with the church at Pergamum. But that's not the way it is. I believe he writes this letter with tears in his eyes. He's been shut out. The church that had everything except Jesus. Despite all their money, their name brand clothing, their eye salve, yet they didn't have the one thing they needed most. Right? The thing they need, the person they needed most was outside knocking on the door, trying to awaken them to come in. And it was time to let go of everything they had and run to the door and open it and invite him in. They needed what he had to provide. All right? Number six, their example. Because up until now, Christ has always had a faithful few in the congregation who've overcome that he has used as an example. Okay? Those that, for example, overcome complacency in Ephesus. He said, I, I, I know that there's, there's still a remnant of you guys. Uh, those that overcame fear in Smyrna, those who overcome uh, compromise in Pergamum, those who overcome worldliness in Thyatira, those who overcome pride in Sardis, those who overcame weak, uh, weakness in Philadelphia. But there's no positive examples here in Laodicea. No one there to, at that point had overcome. Think about it. So Christ... Since he doesn't have any of them to use as an example, he uses himself. And he says, he who overcomes as I also overcame. He said, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. What do you think Christ means? Well, if we will overcome like he did, he's going to let us rule and reign with him. Praise God. So the question is, what did Jesus overcome? Well, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 tells us that Christ had to overcome self. It had to go. It says how he emptied himself. He laid his greatest qualities aside to become like one of us. And now as Laodicea has trusted in self, Christ is telling them they're going to have to deny themselves. And that is where we come to this evening. Are we willing to deny self, take up our cross, follow Christ? This is the only way, he says, to gain true treasures in heaven. This is the only way to gain true righteousness. This is the only way to gain true discernment. Otherwise, it's nothing more than an outward religion, and all it accomplishes is giving Christ a stomachache. Right? Praise God. Somebody say amen. amen. All right. Let me conclude. I, I, I read this letter and I say, God, don't let me settle 
for half-hearted, lukewarm self-sufficiency. Right? There is no place in the Christian life for neutral affections. There's no place for spiritual coasting. We must be all in. Right? And this letter provides us with the much-needed nudge or push of persuasion from the Holy Spirit to trade our self-sufficiency for Christ's sufficiency. How many know he is all-sufficient? Praise God. Sometimes we all just need a little nudge, don't we? Just a little push. Come ahead, Sister Jones, if you would. I don't know if you've heard of Daniel Cox. He was a former jet pilot turned business leader. Tells um, his readers in a book he wrote that was entitled Seize the Day. He said that when the fighter jets were first released after invention and testing, they flew so much faster than the propeller predecessors that he said pilot ejection became a more sophisticated process. Theoretically, of course, all the pilot needed to do was push a button, clear the plane, roll forward out of the seat so that the parachute would open. However, there was a problem. Some pilots, instead of letting go, would keep a grip on the seat until it was almost too late. Terrified by the speed with which they flew through the air, not to mention the G-forces against their bodies, so the engineers had to go back to the drawing board and come up with a solution. And that new design called for a two-inch strap, one end attached to the front edge of the pilot's seat and run underneath the pilot with the other end attached to an electronic take-up reel that was behind their headrest. Two seconds after ejection, the electronic take-up reel would take up the slack, literally forcing the pilot out of his seat, thus freeing the parachute to open. And the bottom line, Cox writes in his book, was that the fighter pilots just needed a device to launch them out of their seats. And I read that and I thought the question is, what is it going to take to launch us out of ours? Folks, the risen sovereign Christ is knocking at the door. Are we going to stay in our spiritual seat and recliner? and begin to tune him out? Are we gonna rise out of our comfort zones? Answer the door. Somebody say, answer the door. I said, let's answer the door, Broadway. Let's not keep him out. Let him in. And in the strength of his fellowship, we follow him. We live for him until one day he says, we're going to reign with him. All stand with me. I said, we're going to reign with him. And so the answers to self-sufficiency and the church at Laodicea is simply total surrender.
Somebody say total surrender. <coughs> Thank you, Lord, for the insight of your word. Thank you for the wonder of this text. Thank you for its insight. And thank you for the clarification of this truth that helps us resist the pull of the Laodicean lifestyle. Lord, even though these folks made you sick, you were still gracious. Oh, hallelujah. And you said if they would repent, you would give them true riches, true eyesight. Father, give us that same sickening feeling when we try to trust our system of self-righteousness, which makes us arrogantly smug and self-satisfied. May we want nothing of lukewarmness in this generation. God, be gracious to any of us that's caught up in the Laodicean lifestyle and set us all aflame for Christ. Turn up the temperature. Help us to turn up the temperature in our love for you. God, this is for your own glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people say it. Amen. Hallelujah. Sing this with us. As the ensemble sings the old song, I surrender all. Hallelujah. Oh, I surrender mm. That's the song that the Laodiceans need to sing. I surrender all to Thee, my blessed Savior. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Have you told Jesus how much you loved him today? Why don't you find a place to pray? Do just that. Surrender afresh and anew.